Good morning, Cross Point. All right. As Jacob said, it's a pretty, pretty big honor to be introduced by the missionaries who are hosting today. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> uh, as, uh, the scripture today we're going to be reading is from Acts 9, 32 through the end of the chapter. Um, while you're getting there, uh, my name is Darren Freidinger. Um, my wife Jane and I have been coming to Cross Point since 2007, and we were covenant members since shortly after that. I don't remember exactly what day. Um, probably seen my kids running around here. They're, they all look exactly like me, so <laughs> <laughs> I've used that joke before. But that's right. um, We are also on the go team with uh, Stephen and uh, all, all the rest of the team. I'm not going to list everybody here. And we were actually missionaries to Isaiah 55, Cross Point being our sending church. So um, with that being said, let's hear a word from the Lord today. <clears throat> now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. As Peter said to him, Aeneas, excuse me, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he arose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tab <clears throat> excuse me, Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to, be a come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was there with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days and with, with one Simon, a tanner. This is our word from the Lord. Awesome. Thank you. So we're going to be continuing in Acts. Right? You guys have been going through Acts, which is one of my favorite books. And before I jump into these two stories, these two stories where some miraculous healing occurs, I just want to review the book of Acts to catch us up to where we are now so that we can um, remember the context in which we find these two stories. The book of Acts is a unique book in that it is laid out in a geographical manner, meaning that the book follows geography more, the, more so than it follows people. Okay, it's, it, maybe you've kind of noticed this already as you've been, go, been going through Acts, but it bounces back and forth between different characters, right? It kind of starts with uh, the disciples uh, and kind of Peter mainly at Pentecost, and then it kind of flips around. You got Philip in there, and then you got Peter again, and then it goes back to Paul, and then back to Peter, and, and it's like, well, what's going on here? But it's because this book is based off of geography, the, the key verse in all of Acts, the thematic verse that we get is all the way back in chapter 1, verse 8. This is Jesus, the last thing he says to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. He tells them in Acts 1, verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the end of the earth. So two things I want us to recognize here. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, this is not going to be something, as God is building his church, it's not going to be something that comes from man. It's not going to be primarily man's work. It's going to be the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God that sees his church go forth. And then he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where the, the disciples are when he says this, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. So broadening, opening up a little bit to the surrounding areas and then to the ends of the earth. So as we see Acts unfold, we see first the witness going out in Jerusalem and God uh, making his church in Jerusalem. And then we see it spread out to Judea and Samaria. And eventually we see it go out to the, um, well, through Paul, we see it start to go out past the regions of Israel and Judea and Samaria and further. And so this, and uh, in this passage, in the end of Acts chapter 9, we are still in Judea and Samaria. We have not yet gone out to the ends of the earth. Outside of Israel, they're still in Judea and Samaria. And the last time we saw Peter before this, he was in Samaria. If you remember the story about Simon the sorcerer, do you guys remember that one? Where Simon the sorcerer tries to pay to get the power of the Holy Spirit? Is that ringing any bells? So yeah, Peter is, yeah, I see one hand. I don't, I don't know about the rest of you. Maybe you guys were asleep that day. Or, but anyways, uh, Peter was in Samaria. He goes out. He, um, he helps spread the word there. And then he comes back to Jerusalem again to report about what was going on in Samaria. And then we read about Paul. And then suddenly we're back again with Peter. And that's where we pick up in today's passage. So chapter 9, verse 32, it says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So he was in Jerusalem reporting what happened in Samaria. Now he's going to and fro amongst believers in kind of the Judean region. Lydda is about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem, not quite all the way to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but kind of halfway between Jerusalem and the coast. So he's going around. Uh, we don't know exactly what he was doing. He was probably supporting the believers that there already were in the Judean region and probably also proclaiming the gospel uh, to people who did not yet believe. But so he's at Lydda. And in verse 33, it says, There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. So I'd like to point out here, this man had been bedridden for eight years. Okay, eight years is a long time. Uh, especially if my son is listening, because he's not even eight yet. So that's more than his entire life. It's a pretty long time, huh? So eight years he's been bedridden, and we're not talking about bedridden in a hospital where you get waited on or helped or the best of care, anything like that. No, he was probably a beggar, probably begging for uh, his food, for his clothes, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so this man had been paralyzed for a very long time. We're not talking about some minor injury or sickness or illness or ailment or something like that. This is a serious, serious ailment that has overtaken this man, Aeneas. So he had been bedridden for eight years, paralyzed, it says. And then in verse 34, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed, and immediately he rose. I'd like to pause on this verse for a little bit and unpack it a little bit more because there's a lot going on in here. I first want us to notice, what does Peter say to the man? Look at it if you have it open in front of you. He says his name, Aeneas. 
And then he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ heals you. Not I heal you. Not in the name of Jesus Christ I heal you. If he had said that, that would have been fine. But he says, Jesus Christ heals you. So some important things to tease out of this. First of all, Jesus Christ had just died a few weeks before this, right? He had just died, right? Who remembers the crucifixion story, right? <laughs> Hopefully we remember. Yeah, okay, more hands. Yes, good. <laughs> Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, right? And all these people would have been aware of that. Dead people don't heal people, do they? Dead people don't make paralyzed people walk again, do they? No, they don't. Dead people don't do much of anything. So first and foremost, what Peter is doing here is he is making a resurrection claim. Hey, guys, this Jesus that you're wondering about, that you've heard so much about, that you heard he was dead, he is alive. He is indeed alive. He is no longer dead. He is alive. And not only is he alive, but he has risen in power, right? Because he heals this man. Jesus Christ heals you. It's not Peter. It's Jesus Christ who heals the man. So not only is he risen, resurrected from the dead. There's Zebedee. He's here. He's awake. <laughs> not only has he risen uh, from the dead, but he has risen in power. He has power over sickness, over paralysis. In the next story, we're going to see he has power over death. So he's making two claims there. And then I want us to notice something else about this, something that maybe we tend not to see or overlook. It isn't made plain in the Scripture necessarily, but I want you to notice what isn't there. Peter, in saying this, Jesus Christ heals you. There is no manipulation or appeasement of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter is not saying, Jesus Christ, I command you to heal this person. He's not performing some ritual that would appease Jesus or make him happy and say, okay, I'm happy, so I'll heal this man. And why do I point that out? I point that out because in every other religion where they have a relationship with the spiritual realm and uh, tend to try to get the spiritual realm to perform some type of miraculous works, there's always appeasement. And there's always manipulation. Just think back in the Old Testament, right? You guys remember the story of when Elijah and the prophets of Baal are going head to head, right? They come up with a little contest, you know, build an altar and put a bull on it. The prophets of Baal go first. They're trying to get their god, Baal, to send down fire and to uh, consume the sacrifice. And they're doing all sorts of stuff, right? And by the end, they're literally cutting themselves, bleeding all over the altar because they're hoping that... Uh, Baal will look down on that and he'll be happy. Okay, look, these people, they, they really want me to do this and I like it when they cut themselves. Blood appeases me. It makes me happy. That's what I want them to do. So the people are thinking when Baal sees that, he'll have to listen to us now. They're trying to manipulate their God to get him to do something. You can see that all throughout the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. Just think of Simon the magician, right? What does he try to do? He tries to pay to get the power of the Holy Spirit. He's trying to appease or to manipulate God, right? My money will make him happy, so he'll give me power. But that's not how God works, is it? In Kuyu, it works the same way. I showed you pictures of that guy, Reuben, 
is in a couple of the pictures. He's our local witch doctor. He's probably the most powerful one. Uh, the way it works in Kuyu is when you're sick or you get injured, um, you're wondering why. Okay, what, what did I do wrong that caused this to happen? So you go to Reuben, and you usually bring some money, or you may bring some tobacco that they grow, or some, um, some other stuff that they like to chew or eat. You bring that to Reuben, and, and you'll give it to him, and you'll ask him, okay, wh what did we do wrong? And he'll take that, and he'll, uh, he'll uh, smoke the tobacco, chew the nuts, and all that sort of stuff, and then he'll offer some of it to the spirit that he claims he communicates with. And uh, so he's appeasing this spirit, and then he'll go into a trance-like state, and he says that the spirit talks to him. And he'll reveal a moment in time, uh, almost like a snapshot, like a video going back in time of what this person did wrong. Maybe they had an argument with their husband or wife, or maybe they uh, stepped over the wrong tree in the middle of the jungle, or maybe they stole something from somebody's garden. And so he'll get that vision, and then uh, the Spirit will tell, uh, tell Reuben what that person needs to do to make it right. So then he'll wake up, he'll go talk to that person, they'll do what they think they need to do, and then they hope that they'll get better, that their wound will go away, that their boil will heal, or that their kid will stop coughing up blood, whatever it may be. But it's all about manipulation. It's all about appeasement. How do I get this Spirit to work for me? And it's also about honoring the person, the witch doctor, right? The person who you go to to get this information or the healers, right? Simon Magician was in, in it for himself. He wanted the honor. He wanted the fame. But notice what Peter does here. There is no manipulation. He's simply walking in the spirit, being led by the spirit. And he says, Jesus Christ heals you and he's healed. Not because Peter knew the right ritual to do to make Jesus do it. No, he was walking in the spirit and Jesus heals this man. An incredible story, one to remember, because our God truly cannot be manipulated. And maybe we're thinking, right, well, we don't manipulate God, right? We're not witch doctors, and we're not. But, but we do try and manipulate God in many ways, don't we? I know sometimes prayer, we use prayer to try and manipulate God, don't we? We think, Man, oh man, if I, if I pray hard enough, God will answer my prayer, right? If I just pray harder, maybe, maybe if I hit my knees, maybe if I pray every day about this, God will hear me and he will do what I want him to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying over and over. There's nothing wrong with praying fervently, but it's about the attitude, right? Why are we praying? Do we think that if we're good enough, if we pray hard enough, if we pray long enough, that we can make God do what we want him to do? The answer is obviously no, but how often do we act as if we can manipulate God? So Jesus Christ does heal this man. He does heal Aeneas. It says, and immediately he rose. And then verse 35, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. This is the main point of this passage. Remember, the point of Acts is how God is uh, is spreading his church. He's making his church as it goes from Jerusalem and then expands to Judea and Samaria and goes out even further. So we see how more believers come into the kingdom of heaven because they witnessed this miracle of Jesus Christ. And I love the term that they turned to the Lord. 
I love that. In the next, in the next uh, story that we're going to read, it says, many saw what happened and they believed. And believed is also a wonderful term, but I think sometimes we have watered down the meaning of belief, right? Like, I can believe that God exists, but does that affect the way I live my life? Does that change how I do anything? I can believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, but what does that mean, right? Is he just a get-out-of-jail-free card, and that means I can do, right? My sins are forgiven, so now I can do whatever I want. Sometimes belief is just all up here, mental. I believe that it happened. But turning is a wonderful picture, right? It's the idea of repentance. Turning from what you were once looking at, following, believing in, and turning and looking and following something else. I mean, imagine if you saw this miracle happen, or if you knew this man in Nias, you knew he was paralyzed, and the next day you saw him, and he's leaping for joy, running around. That would be incredible. So Jesus Christ is expanding his church in power, revealing his power to expand his church. The next story starts in verse 36. It says, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. I wanted to name one of our daughters Dorcas, but my wife didn't let me. She wasn't a fan of that name. It actually means gazelle. It's kind of a beautiful meaning. But So when translated means Dorcas, she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now, again, I just want to point out, this is not some minor illness. This is serious. This lady died. Tabitha died. Sometimes some people have thoughts of, you know, well, the ancient people didn't, they didn't have the type of medical understanding we have now, so maybe she didn't die. Maybe she just swooned, or maybe she was in a coma or something like that. Um, But... Actually, the ancient people had a very good understanding of death. In fact, the average person probably had a much better understanding of death than the average person now because they saw it so much and were around it so much. And there were no morticians or anything like that. So when somebody died, they had to deal with the bodies. You couldn't pay somebody to do it. So we see them performing the burial rituals. They washed her body and laid her in an upper room. Uh, you can even think about when Jesus died and how, they, how the, the Roman soldiers... Uh, stabbed him with a spear and they saw that the water had separated from the blood and they knew that that meant he was dead. They had an understanding of when somebody was dead. So Tabitha is dead here, truly dead. Verse 38, since Lydda was near Joppa, which is true, if you leave Jerusalem and you head, well, this way, you head towards Lydda and then you just go a little bit Further, maybe about 10, 12 miles further, you'd end up in Joppa, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So it says, since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Okay, I don't want to skip past this verse because this is an interesting one. It's, it's easy for us to read these stories sometimes and just skip through them, isn't it? And miss out on what's really going on here. But I want you to think about this, Okay. Tabitha has died. They know it. They know she's dead. She's been washed and laid in an upper room. And the disciples, the the believers there, they hear that Peter is nearby in a nearby city. And so they send these two men to go urge Peter to come with them quickly, to come back. Okay, so why do they do that, right? This lady's dead. Do they want Peter to come to give a eulogy over Tabitha? 
Or do they want him to come to, I don't know, support the disciples there? No, it's very clear that the reason that they want him to come is to do something about Tabitha. Namely, she's dead. They want her back again. They want her alive again. So think about the faith there. These men are going to urge Peter to come to bring Tabitha back to life. That's why they went. Think about that. That is incredible faith. And just, you can see the incredible power that was happening during this time as God was making his church, planting his church. So they go, they call out for Peter, they tell him to come, presumably telling him, hey, Tabitha has died, and uh, yeah, we'd like you to come and do something about it. So verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. This is where she was laid. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Now this is an interesting uh, little little tidbit that is included in this story, right? When I used to read this story, I I would wonder, why why does this get included, right? Well, it's interesting. This is a very human response to death. In Kuyu, we see it a lot. That man who died, Nicholas, he was the basket maker in the village. And I remember when he died, for sev- dirt, when we were sitting in the house with them, mourning with them, and then for several days after, the people would walk around with their baskets, just showing everyone the baskets that he had made. And they would say, this is, I'm going to hang this in my house so that I can remember Nicholas. This is his handiwork. And uh, so it wasn't all good, right? So some of the motivation for doing that was because they were so sad they had lost their basket maker. And they were saying, who's going to make baskets for us ever again? They used their baskets for a lot. So they were sad, not because they'd lost Nicholas so much, but because they'd lost their basket maker. But others were just doing it because they wanted to remember him. And I think it's interesting that Luke includes this in the account here. It's, it's almost like, hey, this story is real. This is a little tidbit. This is a little fact just showing you this story is real, showing you the real raw emotions that are going on in these people's lives They've lived with Tabitha. She's lived amongst them. And they're simply showing Peter the things, the wonderful things that she has made. Verse 40, But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Again, there's no manipulation. There's no appeasement. He does pray. But my guess as to what Peter was praying about is he was asking God what to do in this situation. What do I do? I believe that's why he put the people out. Because he needed time alone with the Lord to figure out, Father, Jesus, what do you want me to do in this situation? And walking in the Spirit again, he turns and says, Tabitha, arise. And she did. She was brought back from the dead. Again the power of Jesus Christ to raise somebody from the dead. And moving on from this, it says, Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So it's interesting. We have these two stories back to back. And both of them, a miracle happens, right? A paralyzed man is healed, and then a dead woman is raised back to life. And in both of these instances, it says afterwards, And many saw and turned to the Lord. Or many uh, saw and believed. 
So these stories, the main point of these stories is it's showing God's faithfulness in making his church, in spreading his church. And he's doing it through power, through miracles. And when we read these stories, I think there is a natural question that comes to the front of our minds, right? And it is fair to ask, and it's one that needs to be addressed. And the question is this. Is this still how God wants to further his church? And I think the answer is yes and no. I think the answer is no because this is a unique time in history. The apostles are around, right? God gave special authority, special power to the apostles, Peter being one of the apostles. And so God was doing exceptional things when the apostles were around. He gave them an exceptional ministry, an exceptional authority to go along with that. And I think it makes sense. This is the birth of the church. Everything always takes a little bit more energy, a little bit more power to get going, right? Uh, An engine takes more power to start up than it does to keep going. If you're starting a generator, it takes more power, more energy, more effort to start it than it does to just keep it going. All of our electrical appliances, the, the startup wattage is always... I, do you ever look at like the actual specifications on your electric appliances? The starting wattage is always way higher than the running wattage. That's because it always takes more effort to get things going than to keep them running. And this is what's happening here. God, God used extraordinary means to get his church going. But I think the answer to the question is also yes. Because although there are no apostles, we are not apostles. God does not appoint apostles like he did during this time period anymore. But there is one key figure in this story that is still around today, isn't there? And that's the person who is doing these healings. And it wasn't Peter. It was Jesus Christ. And he's the one character in this story who's still around. And think about this. As you guys go through the book of Acts, you're you're going to see God's faithfulness in furthering his church. Right now we're in Judea and Samaria, but eventually we're going to get to Paul, and you're going to see it go outside of the bounds of Israel. It's going to go further and further. And eventually Paul's going to end up in Rome. And that's where the book of Acts ends. It ends in Rome. And when you get there, you're going to see something very interesting. The book ends rather abruptly. In fact, it seems like it ends in the middle of a story. And it does. That's exactly what it's doing. And I believe that Luke, the author of this book, did that intentionally. I believe he did that because he wanted the reader to understand that this story is not over. Okay? Rome is not the ends of the earth. Rome is the beginning of the ends of the earth. There are still people who have never heard this gospel message. So this story that begins all the way back here in Acts chapter 1 of God birthing his church and then being faithful to see it go out and further his kingdom, he's still writing that story today in a very real way. Not in the pages of Scripture, but in the pages of his mind in heaven. So think about this. As the gospel went further than Rome, there was another chapter written in the mind of God. As it went further, went into Africa, and went into parts of Asia, went into Europe, there were other chapters written in the mind of God. As it left and went over the oceans and went over to other places, as it came to America, there was another chapter 
written. And as it came further, and as it came and ended up here in Eureka, Illinois, this little place here, Stephen called you guys an insignificant church. I won't. I think you guys are a cool church. But when it came here, and God's church came here, believers came here, there was another chapter written. And the coolest thing is that in Kuyu, that chapter, the Kuyu chapter has only just begun to start being written. It's only just begun. There's so much to come for the Kuyu people. There's so much to come for you guys here too. Because certainly there is still work to be done here as well. And so our stories now, what we're doing now in taking the gospel to people who don't know it here, to people who don't know it in Kuyu, to people who don't know it everywhere, it's the same story. It's just the continuation of, this, of these two stories that we read this morning. God is still the same God. Now that doesn't mean we go around finding dead people to raise back to life. It doesn't mean we go around finding paralyzed people to heal. But what it does mean is that God is still a powerful God and he is going to continue to expand his church in power. And we need to understand that. Because here in the West, in the Western church, we so often deceive ourselves into thinking that it's about our effort. It's about what we do. And if somebody asks us that question, is it more about what you do or about what Christ does? We'd all know the right answer. We'd all say it's more about what Jesus does. But then if somebody was to actually evaluate what we do and knew our, our hearts and our mindsets and our attitudes and how we go about doing what we're doing, it would probably become clear quite quickly that we don't actually live that out. That we actually believe it's more by our power, by our strength, by what we're doing, that God's church is going to be furthered. And that is a sad state of affairs. Because if we take Jesus Christ out of the equation, we've taken the power out of the equation. I would like to testify this morning to the power of God that we have witnessed already in Kuyu. Now, there is no church in Kuyu yet. There are no Kuyu believers. Not yet. But ever since we started this process, we have seen Satan's hand against us. And uh, as, as soon as we decided that we were going to move into Kuyu, we started getting attacked left and right. All sorts of stuff. I myself have experienced demonic oppression, and I've seen God's faithfulness in overcoming that. When... When we started building our houses, there was just so much stuff that went wrong. Um, you guys probably heard about Michael getting the cerebral malaria. That took him out of the equation for a while. We had all of our house building supplies. put. We put them on um, a cargo truck, and that cargo truck tipped over in a ditch on the side of the road. And uh, as we were trying to fix that, we got held up by bandits, got shaken down. I got um, held up at gunpoint. At one point, got everything I owned stolen away from me. Just crazy thing after crazy thing. There's a lot more I could share, but I don't have time for. And somehow through all of that, I, if you ask Jonathan or Michael or anyone on our team, if you ask them, how did our houses got, uh, how did they get built? We would all say the same thing. We have no idea. <laughs> um, we have no idea how our houses are standing in the middle of Kuyu, but it, it is because of the power of God. Um, some of the stuff that we've seen since being in Kuyu can only be explained by the hand of God. Um, sustaining us there, maintaining our ministry there, and keeping us going. And, and we fully expect that in the future that God will continue to show up in powerful ways. 
Um, we're not there yet, but we know many other missionaries who have gone before us who say all sorts of things uh, that, uh, that have happened in their tribes once there were believers and how God showed up in powerful ways. One of the biggest things is these guys live off the land. All, all their food comes from their gardens, and so you could imagine they have a lot of spirits of the gardens, and they pray to a lot of spirits and do a lot of rituals and manipulation to bring blessing upon their gardens and food. And It's a very corporate mindset. There's no individuality there, so the whole village does it, or they don't do it. They live and die as a group. And so you could imagine once there's believers, there's going to be people who are going to be thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't do it anymore. And, and uh, so they come to the missionaries and they say, well, what do we do? You know, if I don't do this, everyone else is going to be mad at me. And then what if the crops fail? Like, what's going to happen? And, and the missionaries always say, well, w- what do you think the Lord wants you to do? And they'll say, well, I think he wants us to pray to him and not to anyone else. And the missionaries will say, well, yeah, yeah, so, so let's do that. And let's trust in the Lord and, and see what he does. There are all sorts of wonderful stories. You guys saw the pictures of the yams I showed you. Some of them, some of them are about this big. Well, lots of times when this happens, um, the people, the believers won't do it. They won't do the rituals. They won't uh, try to appease the, the spirits there. And the rest of the community will be really mad at them. Yeah, there we go. Wow, we got a professional back there. And... Um, and the rest of the community will be really mad at them, saying, you are going to ruin our crops. We're all going to starve to death this year. And every single time, God shows up in an incredible way. And I've, I've seen pictures you wouldn't believe. Yams, the, um, only in the believer's gardens, yams that will grow taller than me. I mean, just ridiculous, like a yam. What? You know, you go into the grocery store and you see a yam about this long. Well, yams growing taller than me. And just, just the Lord showing up, in a miraculous way, in a powerful way, saying, yeah, I, I'm here. I'm the true God, and I got this. You can trust in me. So I would like to testify to the power of God this morning, and I'd like to challenge all of us, all of us here, because God is not just working in Kuyu. He's not just working at the ends of the earth. He's working here too. So what does it mean for us here? It means trust in the Lord that he will show up in a powerful way, that he is working in a powerful way. As we minister here, as we talk to unbelievers here, believers here, as we do what the Lord would have us do here, expect that he is going to show up in a powerful way. Trust that he is the source of furthering his church, of furthering his kingdom, of deepening our relationships with him. He is truly the source. Don't rely on your own power. You have no power. I promise you that you have no power, and as soon as you try to do it on your own, you will fail. We will fail. We will fail together if we forget that it is the Lord, that it is Jesus Christ who expands his church, and he does it in a powerful way. So I think these stories are a reminder to us. What is our attitude as we minister? Who are we trusting in as we minister? Seriously. That question we ask ourselves a lot, right? And we kind of give ourselves a pep talk. Oh, it's all about the Lord. It's all about the Lord. And then we go and try to do things in our own strength. No, think about that. Who is the true source of power behind what we are supposed to be doing, behind what we are doing? And the Lord will be faithful. He will be faithful to expand his church, to plant his church, to make his church grow larger. And it will be through his power and through his strength. And as, as you 
allow God to work through you, and as you expect him to show up in powerful ways, man, you'll see it. You'll see his faithfulness. Again, I just want to testify to that this morning. We've seen it, and we can all see it. Even here in Eureka, we can see it here too. So if that is an encouragement to you guys, let me pray as we close here this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to doing what you say you're going to do. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that we have these stories that you have written down for us, that you have recorded for us in your holy word that we can hang on to, that we can claim as our own. They are part of the same story that you are still writing today. Thank you for that. And Lord, I just pray for all of us here today that as we go from here, as we continue in our lives, as we continue to be faithful disciples to you, that we would rely, truly rely on your power and not on our own. That when we go out and when we are talking to people who don't believe, when we go out to work and we are trying our best to be witnesses and lights where we work or with our families in our own homes or with our students, wherever we find ourselves, that we would truly rely on your power, that we would ask you to show up in a powerful way, that we would become less, that you would become more. Father, I ask that that would be the attitude of us all. Thank you again for your word. We pray this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Father, it is a gift to be able to sing and declare your that you are worthy and your greatness and your power as we wait, as we live on mission. One sweet day, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will declare that you are worthy as we enjoy your presence unhindered by sin, unhindered by the enemy. We love you, Jesus. We trust you in the now, and we trust you in daily life. We pray this in your name. Amen.